job transition, vacation plans, living situation, stock trades, Bible study, birthday gifts, party planning, car troubles, budgeting, hospitality, Harambe policies, surgeries, workout plan, sermon prep. All these topics have taken up significant space in my mind just over the last week. And I haven't even mentioned having a relationship with my wife. How was your day? How was your dentist appointment? Do your teeth still hurt? How did you sleep? Why are you smiling? Why that look on your face? What you reading? What you listening to? What do you want to eat? What would you like to do tomorrow? How about tonight? Should we call your parents? Is there any more chocolate tart left? I think you're being too emotional. I'm, I'm sorry. Great job, babe. You look great. You're the best. I love you. And marriage is, is, of course, much more than that, but those are a lot of the things that we say to each other throughout the week. Life is full as it is. Life gets fuller with marriage. And I would like you to take a moment and think through all that's been on your mind this past week or month. Whether you're single or married, what's been occupying your mind. And, and I just want to take a few moments, just think about that. What, what's, what's been keeping you up at night? What have you been anxious about? The question that I have for us this morning is in the midst of life's worries all that just came to your mind over the past moment is this can Jesus have your undivided attention does he should he can he can Jesus have your undivided attention at first glance, in looking at our passage today, you might think that this passage is about whether you should marry or not. But I would submit to you that marriage, in Paul's mind, is actually secondary here. And that Paul is really talking about, and what he really wants to help us to understand, is, is where is our attention focused? Where is our attention focused? focus. And I want to encourage us this morning to, to pause, to breathe, to focus, to listen, and to discern what is the Lord saying to us this morning. There's three key principles that I want to surface that I believe um, can be distilled from this passage. Three principles that will help shape 
um, the focus of our attention. Three principles to help shape the focus of our attention. Those three principles are remain, detach, and do. And remain as you are, detach as though it's passing away, and do as you wish in the Lord. Those are the three principles that I want to hit on. The first principle to help shape the focus of our attention is to remain, remain as you are. I'm going to read, reread verses 25 through 28. Now concerning the betrothed, I have no command from the Lord, but I give my judgment as one who by the Lord's mercy is trustworthy. I think that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a betrothed woman marries, she has not sinned. Yet those who marry will have, will have worldly troubles, and I would spare you that. Now, where you see the word betrothed, uh, some Bible versions uh, will translate that as virgins, uh, some as young, unmarried women. And this is probably referring to unmarried women that are engaged. However, the applications in this passage should be applied more broadly uh, to all unmarried women and men. It just so happens that the Corinthians were, were probably writing to Paul specifically about the group of those who were uh, engaged to be married. Now, why would this have been a concern of theirs? Well, we saw that in the beginning of this chapter, chapter 7, verse 1, Paul writes that it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, And Paul is not taking that saying out of a vacuum He's basically quoting to them a commonly understood uh, philosophy of life or general maxim that the church in Corinth and perhaps even the society at large in Corinth would have articulated, at least some. And the Corinthians very much valued philosophy and knowledge, and they were all about trying to figure out what's the right way to live. And so you, you had some who, who saw... Uh, who, who basically treated things like, uh, uh, basically they advocated for a freedom that was, would allow them to do whatever they wanted with their bodies. It was licensed. There was, there was no sort of moral significance to anything you do with your body, and therefore you do whatever you want. And that was what some people believed, and then that's what Paul primarily addressed in chapter 6. However, there were others that believed to be super spiritual you actually need to abstain from bodily pleasures, especially sex. And so you had some who were basically lifting up this idea of uh, asceticism, sexual asceticism. And so um, they had a saying, it is good for a man not to have sexual relations with a woman. And, And what you see Paul beginning to do is, He agrees with it to a point, but then he caveats it, and he explains it. He sets it in the proper context for understanding. So Paul doesn't just give a blanket endorsement of that statement and say, yep, that's the rule for everyone. He says, 
okay, now we're going to talk about how that works out and why you would even want to pursue that. So that's what Paul is going to do through the rest of this passage. In verse 25, when Paul says that he has no command from the Lord, he simply means that Jesus did not explicitly teach on this topic. However, Paul says that he gives this judgment on the basis of the Lord's mercy. And therefore, his counsel, his judgment is trustworthy. So we believe that the whole Bible is the inspired, inerrant word of God in the original languages. So Paul's word is not to be taken more lightly. He's just saying, Jesus didn't talk about it, but hey, God's called me to speak to you, and this is what I have to say. So we are called to listen to him just as much as we listen to the red letters in the Bible. So what is Paul's godly judgment? He says that in view of the present distress, it is good for a person to remain as he is. Now I'm going to talk about the, the uh, present distress in the next point. And, and for this point, I want to focus on the part that he says, remain as you are. Now the idea of remaining as you are is continued from what Paul has just been uh, writing. In verse 8, in verse 20, in verse 24, Paul advocates for remaining in your current condition. And now here in this passage, he continues to say, remain as you are. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Do not seek a wife. So Paul says, remain where you are. How's that for a key to success in life? The key to success in life is to know that wherever you are, you should stay there. Like, how many books would that message sell? If you're poor, stay there. If you're sick, stay there. If I'm honest, like, I don't like that advice. Like, I'm an American. If you have a condition that you don't like, you change it. Like you have the power to change it and maybe even the obligation to change it. Like it just feels wrong to me. I remember when I was single, I really looked forward to marriage. Oftentimes, marriage was for me, it was the greener grass on the other side. I could trade in my lonely nights for companionship and intimacy. I could trade in getting food served by a clown to getting food, homemade dinner served by a beautiful woman. I envisioned road trips and board games, sunsets and sleep-ins. Remain as you are? Like, what is that? I really, like, marriage is obviously better in every single way than singleness. That's what I thought. Single people are losers, right? There's no way, no way I was going to stay single. I remember when I first started coming to Harambe um, in my early 20s, I was probably about 22 years old and frustrated that I hadn't met my future wife yet. And I remember talking to one of the pastors uh, at the time, and 
He said, you know, Caleb, I wasn't married till I was 34 years old. And he, he said that like it was supposed to be encouraging. Uh, <laughs> I, and I just nodded, but in my head, I'm like, what? 34 years old, that's old. I was thinking, what's wrong with you? Like, there's no way I saw myself waiting 12 more years to get married at 34. And in God's sense of humor, 34 years old is, is exactly when I got married to Stephanie. Now that I'm married, I recognize that there's some differences in what I was hyping it up to be versus what it actually is. You see, in my dreams of marriage, what I didn't always realize was that the object of my fantasies was really me. They were about my satisfaction, my happiness, my fulfillment. I dreamed of making my future wife omelets for breakfast and macaroni and cheese for dinner because that's what I liked. And never did I stop to think that my future wife might actually hate eggs and cheese. And hate it, she does. <laughs> you see, the, the reality of marriage brought with it not simply the satisfaction of my physical and emotional desires, but it brought with it a person. A person that is very different from me with her own likes and dislikes, her own way of thinking, who needs attention. Love for her is not just expressed in wedding vows and birthday cars, but it's expressed day by day, moment by moment, in the attention that I give her. And it's not just when I feel like it or when it's convenient for me. It's when she needs it. Paul writes early in verse 4 that the wife and the husband, they have authority over each other's bodies. And you just get this picture that your life is no longer your own. And so how she spends and what she does with herself matters to me. And, and how I spend and what I do with myself matters to her. Because we have authority over each other in mutual submission in this thing called marriage. All that to say, marriage is good. Marriage is very good. But marriage also takes time. It takes investment. And it takes a lot of attention. And Paul's point to the single person is that marriage is not necessarily the greener grass you're looking for. Marriage comes with it some work and some trouble. And though Paul makes it clear that it's not wrong to marry, he also wants to make sure that we count the true cost of what it really is. Marriage isn't for fulfilling your deepest needs. That's something that only God can do. And so if you're single and you're believing the lie that 
that you're complete, that you're incomplete without marriage, then you need to understand that you've made marriage out to be something that it is not. You've essentially created an idol, a false savior that has no ability to save. And when it, when it fails you, as it will, then you'll be disappointed and regret it. Can Jesus have your undivided attention? Remain as you are and seek the Lord. Can Jesus have our undivided attention? Like, why is, that, seems, that sounds difficult. Why is it difficult? The second principle to help shape the focus of our attention is detach. Detach as though it's passing away. Let me continue reading in verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none, and those who mourn as though they were not mourning, and those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing, and those who buy as though they had no goods, and those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it, for the present form of this world is passing away. I want you to be free from anxieties. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord, but the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife. And his interests are divided. And the unmarried or betrothed woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit, but the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you, but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. Now, Paul earlier said, in light of the present distress, that it's good for a person to remain as he is. A a question that comes up is, what is Paul referring to when he says present distress? Now, some commentators will say that Paul is perhaps talking about a famine or some other local crisis within Corinth, maybe some persecution or whatnot. While this is a possibility, most scholars seem to be in agreement that that Corinth at the time was was a fairly prosperous city. And and it wasn't known to be a, a, a place that was particularly painful for Christians to be in. So certainly there were times later where persecution increased and it wasn't a great time to be a Christian from the standpoint of of suffering and attack, but uh, most agree that this was probably not that time and there was no known uh, major disruptions in terms of prosperity or famine or whatnot. It could have been the case. However, Despite that, I think it's clear that Paul is not talking primarily about a local crisis, but he's talking about something that's more significant and and, and more broad in its scope. He says in verse 29, This is what I mean, brothers. 
And the weight of what he's just written has been carried with the judgment that he gave in verse 26. In view of the present distress, it is good for a man to, or for a person to remain as he is. Then Paul gives some example situations and he expresses his willingness that, that they would be uh, protected from those troubles. And then in verse 29, he says, this is what I mean. And so that this is what I mean points back to the context that explains why he's giving that judgment. So here Paul is actually saying what he means about this present distress. And so we, we get what, what I think is a very beautiful and poetic description of life after the resurrection of Jesus and yet before he comes again. Paul says that the appointed time has grown short, and then he bookends his next poetic statement with the statement, for the present form of this world is passing away. So, so Paul has in mind the coming end of the world, or the end of the world as we know it. And so in light of the coming end of the world as we know it, how should we live? And so that's what he's talking about. It's a change in perspective of how we live. Those who have wives, as though they have none. Those who mourn, as though they do not mourn. Those who rejoice, as those who do not rejoice. Those who shop, as though they remain empty-handed. Those who deal with the world, as though they have no dealings. Now, what does this mean? Paul is not saying that you should divorce your wife, stop crying, stop being happy, stop shopping, and go hide yourself in a cave from the world. That's not what Paul is saying. He says the way he writes this assumes that you're actually continuing to do the things that he qualifies after the fact. As you, like those who have a wife, as you're mourning, those who are rejoicing, those who are shopping. You should have a wife if you have a wife. You should mourn. There are times to rejoice. There are times to shop. But there, what Paul is getting, out, is getting at is not about uh, whether or not we engage in those things. He's talking about how we engage in those things. There's a way in which you can engage yourself in the troubles of the life, of life, so to speak, such that it consumes all of who we are. And this is especially true if you can't see how temporary these things are. That's Paul's point, that these things are passing away. And so they have, in light of eternity a lessened value, a lessened importance compared to eternity. Like if, if what we saw today is all there is, if this just carried forward, then, then, then yes, we're right to invest ourselves. But, but if we know that something is short-lived, then we don't invest all of ourselves into something that's passing away. That's his point. In light of the, of the present distress, this, this era where the world is passing away and Jesus is coming again, do all these things 
with an open hand and a certain level of detachment so that your identity is not wrapped up in these things. Think about the list of things that you've been worried about over the last week or even month. And I mean the the specific situations, not, not categories of things. Now think about those 10 or 20 problems you've been trying to solve. How many of those will you be thinking about after the sermon? Some of them, probably. How about a month from now? How about a year from now? How about 10 years from now? 20 years? What about in the light of in the face of eternity will you be thinking about those same problems? The point that Paul is making is the closer you get to eternity, the less important these problems become. The problems and issues that that seem so weighty and so important in the present moment, a year from now, you barely remember. And in the face of eternity, they don't even amount to dust. This is what Paul is getting at. He's saying now that, that Jesus has risen from the dead, the appointed time for his return is short. Everything you see now, all your problems, all your concerns, all your worries, every single one of them is passing away. And some last longer than others. Some are more painful than others. Some are more weighty than others. I was was thinking back to, to some of the things that felt like really weighty decisions when I was younger. I remember the day I quit playing basketball and I told my dad I'm quitting basketball I told my coach I'm quitting because I was mad and I felt like this is a life changing decision and I laugh now but I remember the weight of that at the time it was like everything to me because I saw myself as, as not just a student but a student athlete and here I was before my senior year quitting such a big decision, such a weighty problem, in retrospect is nothing. What I thought would reverberate for decades on end is like, oh, that's a funny story. (laughs) Silly me, I was never going to be a professional basketball player. Perspective. That's what Paul is trying to give us, is perspective. It's not that the things aren't important. It's It's not that we shouldn't engage in with the world but he's saying keep it at arm's length in your mind like there's a way that you can stress and worry over something such that you're burdened and overwhelmed by the mundane of life he says he wants to spare us the trouble that's what he's getting at when he talks about remaining as you are he says it's better if you're single, to remain single because I don't want to add all the extra troubles that come along with that. 
but he doesn't he doesn't leave it there he doesn't leave it at that can Jesus have your undivided attention detach your mind and identity from the things that are passing away and open your eyes to see what's eternally valuable so what if what if you're married or what if you really want to be married how can I give Jesus my undivided attention to help answer that I'd like to introduce the third and final principle to help shape our focus of our attention and that's do do as you wish in the Lord and I'll read verse 35 and to the end of the chapter I say this for your own benefit not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. It is no sin. But whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and has determined this in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So then, he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. A wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Yet in my judgment, she is happier if she remains as she is. And I think that I too have the Spirit of God. Here, Paul is giving some very practical wisdom and advice. Uh, firstly, I want to comment on verse 35 because it's, Paul is articulating what I think is the, the underlying principle of everything he's saying and even these three points that I'm articulating today. And he's saying that what he's saying is for our benefit. It's for our benefit and not to restrain or to handcuff us. So, so Paul's point is not, let me see how many rules I can place on the Corinthians to, 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 make, them, uh, do, to make them not do what they want to do. Right? That's not the point that Paul is... Paul's not out to say, let's see, how many, how many Christians can I lasso in and, and keep confined? He's saying, I'm saying these things for your benefit so that you can actually be free to pursue God with undivided devotion. And Paul, Paul assumes that this is a good thing. Like he doesn't spend a lot of time defending why that should be a good thing because Paul has already spent time with the Corinthians telling them all about Jesus. Paul himself is a witness of of what it looks like to meet and encounter Jesus. Like, Paul was not one who loved Jesus. He hated Jesus. He hated his followers. He approved of the murderer of Christians. 
And in the midst of his rebellion and anger towards God, Jesus pursues Paul, knocks him on his butt, and says, Hey, <laughs> Paul, what you up to? Uh, <laughs> and Paul encounters Jesus. Paul encounters the love of Jesus and becomes transformed. So much so that Paul says this in another letter to the Philippians. Paul, formerly, formerly a Jesus hater and Christian persecutor, says this, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law but that which comes through faith in Christ the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death these are the words of a changed man the words of a man who spent his life thinking that the law could give him life in realizing, in meeting the face of Jesus that he was headed for death and that simply by faith Jesus gave him life. And that message was so powerful that he said, I count all things as lost for knowing him who gives me this message. That I can place my faith and I can be righteous. I can place my faith in him and I can receive eternal life. This is the one that I want to know. This is the one that Paul wants us to know. And he says, anything that would come in the way, anything that would be a hindrance towards uh, us experiencing and, and staying in the presence of this God who loves us in this way, he says, I don't want you to have those hindrances. That's Paul's heart. It's not so much about choices to be married and not married, though he talks about that. He says, I'm trying, I'm trying to tell all of this to you for your benefit so that you can be undivided in your devotion to this God that I met, that I love, that he loves me, and he loves you. I want you to know that. I want you to experience that. And I, as I was preparing for this message, my heart was stirred. As we think through all the things we think about on a day-to-day -day basis, on a week-to-week -week basis, all of, all of life's troubles, it's not necessarily bad things he means by troubles. He just means just normal, mundane, decision-making, the stuff that life brings about. my heart was stirred to just ask God to help us to, to make space in our lives. To make space for the one who loves us and created us and knows us best. And, you know, I'm not, I'm not the biggest crier. I'm not the, the most emotional person in terms of tears. But the times where I've as an adult, 
the times where I've wept uncontrollably have been the times where I've felt the presence of God. And, and, and I felt the, the truth that, that God loved me despite being a sinner. When that sinks deep, you can't help but be in awe about what a great God would do that. And I remember times singing to God coming home from church when I was a college student at night, just singing random things. It didn't even make any sense. It's a joyful noise. Tears streaming down my face in awe. And I, and I was new to the church at that time. I was like, wow. And there's other people who are excited about God too. Being in his presence is a good thing. And it reminded me of, of uh, a story um, written in, in Luke. And I want to kind of wrap up around this image. In Luke, uh, Luke chapter 10, verse 38 through 41. I just realized I don't have that in my notes. I've got to turn. kind of hard. (laughs) All right, verse 38. Now as they went on their way, Jesus entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are anxious and troubled about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. I want to encourage us to just reflect. Take pause. It doesn't mean that stuff shouldn't be done. It just means that there's a priority of importance. That there's, there's, there needs to be space just to sit at Jesus' feet and listen and learn and adore and worship and pray and seek. Everything else is passing away. But Jesus is not. Now, can married people have Jesus' undivided attention? Can, can we give Jesus our undivided attention? Paul uh, recognizes that not everyone is called to be single. For those that are called to be single, they're given a special gift that allows them to be devoted to God in a way that... Um, in a way that they have time that married people don't. Like one of the one of the biggest realizations for me when I got married was that my time was no longer my own. And the way that I used to assess my time management was based on whether I was using my time fruitfully, fruitfully or not. Um, it was, hey, am I? Is this a good thing that I'm doing? 
great, then that's what I'm going to do. That was how I assessed time management. But now, it's not that simple of a calculation. I can be using my own time doing something that is a good thing. For example, I could, I could serve at the shelter every night. And, and that would be a good and fruitful thing to do. And yet now, it would actually be a terrible thing to do. Why? Because my wife has a claim on my time. And she would go, hey, uh, what about me? And it goes both ways. She could teach a dance class for the underprivileged, and that would be a wonderful and fruitful thing. But if she did that every night, it would be a terrible thing for me. So I'd be like, hey, what about me? Love and marriage takes time. Practically speaking, you simply don't have as much time to do other things as someone who isn't married has. And we, and we haven't even had kids yet, and I hear that's a whole nother level. <laughs> Can Jesus have our undivided attention as married folks? Now, I've already made the jump into marriage, and honestly, uh, I don't regret it one bit. Uh, I'm in the category of those people who would be better to get married. So Paul, Paul basically says, put back, verse 36 and following, right, he's talking about uh, someone who is engaged, uh, but his passions are strong. And it says, if it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry. So he's, he's not saying you, you, you shouldn't get married. He's saying there are cases where you probably should. And in this case, like, it's pretty plain. To be frank, he's saying if your sexual drive is too strong then, and you can't control, then it's a good thing to get married. This is very plain and very uh, good counsel and good wisdom. He says, but if you can control, he says... Um, Whoever is firmly established in his heart, being under no necessity, but having his desire under control, and having determined in his heart to keep her as his betrothed, he will do well. So those who marry do well. Those who refrain from marriage do even better. So, so not everyone's called to be single. I don't think... I know I was not called to be single. But I think sometimes what the church doesn't do is give space for those who might be called to be single. And to really take stock of what those benefits could be. And, and even those who are called eventually to marriage, you don't know when you're going to be married, to be honest. When I was 22 years old, I thought I was probably within a year or two of being married. That's what I thought. And so in some, in some sense, it felt, like, it felt like I was paralyzed, like I wasn't fully released to serve God in the ways that He would have me serve because I hadn't yet achieved that thing that I needed. And I think that's a wrong perspective. That... that it's a perspective that begins to build an idol out of marriage. It makes it something that it's not. God 
is enough to give you your identity as you are right now. And maybe it's a season where you're single. How can, how can you use your time? How can you use your singleness to glorify God in this season? Maybe just for a year, two years, five years, maybe for the rest of your life. And if it is, pray to God that, that maybe he would give you the ability to see that as actually a good thing. The whole point is, as Jesus said to Mary, it's a good thing just to sit at his feet and be in his presence and seek a relationship with God. Undivided attention and devotion to Jesus. I think that's it. (laughs) You know, this is a topic that as a single person I thought about a lot. And, um, you know, I I guess if you're single and and this is something that that you want to talk about, feel free to talk with the pastors or or talk in your community groups if you're part of one. Um, It's not an easy question to wrestle through terms of whether to get married or whether not to or even just being single how to use your time most wisely and so i want to pray for you this morning um, that god would that you would hear from god and and i want to pray for you this morning that you would have eyes to see how beautiful god is and eyes to see eyes to see his grace and how that's changed you or how that can change you if you haven't seen that yet. That's really my heart for this morning and that's what I want to pray for. Father, I, I uh, thank you for your word. And Lord, uh, Lord, I confess that I don't, you know, I don't know where everyone's at this morning. Uh, Lord, I know where I was at when I was single and some of the different confusing things that I thought about marriage. And Lord, I would ask, I, I, I want to pray for those who are single, both those who have never been married, those who are widows or widowees, widowers, those who, those who, uh, Lord, those who are contemplating whether or not they will ever get married. And Father, I pray that you would answer them. Lord, I pray that you would encourage them in your word. Father, I ask that you would um, help them to, to see your beauty, to see your glory, to, to see your gospel, your good news as sweet to them. Lord, that they would find the fullness of their identity in you. And I pray, Lord, for those who are single and will be married, Lord, that you would give them patience. That you would give them just a a desire to still seek you and pursue you and not to feel handicapped by not being married. And for those who are married, Lord, I... I thank you, Father, for what a gift that is 
And I ask, Lord, that, that you would help us as married couples to uh, pursue devotion to you. Lord, that in, that in our love for each other as spouses, Lord, that we re- reflect the sacrificial love that you've had for us and in so doing, pursue you. So Lord, would you bring clarity to our spirits? Lord, would you Lord, would you calm our anxieties? Help us to remain in you in whatever condition we're in that we would first look to you and trust in you for what you would have for us in our lives. Father, I thank you. I praise you. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.